is there any sort of plan if the bill does not pass tonight? What no. is the plan? No, we're, we're, it's going to pass. So that's it. <laughs> well, if Sean Spicer says it's going to pass, it's going to pass. Take it to the bank. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. It's not going to pass. I got the feeling that something right. Not even going to be a vote. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ, on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, on 92.9 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 88.5 FM KAKU in Maui, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, boy, oh boy! Uh, coming up, the um, well, while the the, the Capitol Hill uh, and and media are embroiled in this fight over the uh, GOP's attempt to curtail health care for millions of Americans today, and to install the far right nominee into a stolen Supreme Court seat. Um, while all of that is going on, Donald Trump's promise to build dirty oil pipelines that had been blocked by the Obama administration. All of that is moving ahead nicely, thank you. Uh, Though there could be a problem for at least one of them. We'll head up to uh, Canada shortly here uh, to hear uh, about what might block the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline once again and keep that uh, pipeline from actually being completed after all. In the meantime, hey... Happy seventh anniversary of the passage of Obamacare uh, or the Affordable Care Act. Uh, yes, the uh, the bill falsely derided by dishonest Republicans as a government takeover of health care was signed into law by President Obama seven years ago today. And uh, in response, Republicans had vowed uh, in the U.S. House to uh, for passage of the bill meant to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, today. So uh, before we discuss how that's going, hint, not going well, there's this new uh, major new poll out from Quinnipiac, inconveniently for uh, Republicans today. American voters disapprove 56 to 17 percent, with 26 percent undecided, uh, of the Republican health care plan to replace Obamacare. The Affordable Care Act, according to a Quinnipiac University national poll released today. 56 to 17. U.S. voters oppose the Republican health plan 3 to 1 
And to make matters worse, support among, among Republicans is just a lackluster 41 percent, 41 to 24 percent. If their U.S. senator or member of Congress votes to replace Obamacare with the Republican health care plan, 46 percent of voters say they will be less likely to vote for that person. 46 percent, while only 19 percent say they will be more likely to vote for that person. Fewer Americans would be covered under the GOP plan than are covered under Obamacare, according to 61 percent of voters who are absolutely correct about that. The uh, the director of the Quinnipiac poll, Tim Malloy, says replacing Obamacare will come with a price for elected representatives who vote to scrap it. Uh, that, according to many Americans who clearly feel their health is in peril under the Republican alternative. Now, mind you, Donald Trump has been telling these Republicans in the U.S. House that they will be in trouble, that they will pay a political price if they don't pass this bill. Now, moreover, the uh, the cuts to planned par- Planned Parenthood, which are these these uh, funding cuts to Planned Parenthood have been snuck into this repeal bill. That is also strongly opposed even among Republicans. The poll says when it is explained that federal funding for Planned Parenthood is used for only for non-abortion health issues, American voters oppose cutting federal funding to Planned Parenthood 80 to 14 percent. That includes, among Republicans, 60 to 32 percent. That, of course, is when they're told that, hey, federal funding is already a, a, a barred for use uh, with for abortion. But in the simple question, without that explanation, voters still opposed cutting Planned Parenthood funding 61 to 33 percent. Voters also oppose uh, 74 to 22 percent. Uh, including a majority of Republicans. They also uh, oppose cutting federal funding for Medicaid. Only 12 percent of American voters say the Republican health care plan will have a positive impact on their health care. Other than that, it's going great for Republicans, Desi Doyen. <laughs> well, what, from what I'm hearing, this is something that's been borne out by previous polls, that when the American people hear the actual terms and the actual facts, not colored by politics or the stupid ideological stupid things that Republicans say. <laughs> when they hear the truth and the facts, they actually support these things. I'm glad they're finally hearing the truth. Well, they're finally hearing the facts, it sounds like. They're finally understanding what this is going to cost, uh, what the what getting rid of the dreaded Obamacare is actually going to cost them. After seven years of demagoguery and lying to them. Yeah, and uh, media failure in not actually pointing these things out, to and- Exactly. Uh, Let's see. uh, One more point here. Twenty percent of voters feel Trump and Republicans in Congress should repeal the entire Affordable Care Act. That is just 20 percent of voters believe that. Uh, In the meantime, 77 percent say only a part or none at all of Obamacare should be repealed. In the meantime, as far as Trump is concerned, voters disapprove of the way he is handling health care 61 to 29 not going well for republicans uh when it comes to their uh attempt to uh get rid of obamacare but um voters even trump voters uh, clearly hate the uh, republican scheme to re- to replace obamacare and yet house gop leaders uh, and the White House, including Trump himself, have been busy all night and all day today trying to horse trade to modify the bill in order to win just enough votes for passage in the House. 
But that ain't going to happen. At least not today, it seems. Leadership had vowed to rush this vote through in order to ram this uh, repeal and replacement bill through Congress on the seventh anniversary of Obamacare, no matter how unpopular the bill is with their own constituents. And no matter what the the, the fact that the uh, Congressional Budget Office, the nonpartisan CBO, has warned that it would result in 24 million Americans losing their health insurance coverage over the next 10 years. They don't care. They just had to get this thing rammed through, all of which suggests that, frankly, it is less about their voters. It's less their voters they're worried about than their funders, like the nation's largest right-wing advocacy and lobbying group, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. They have come out strongly in support of this bill. And if you don't know the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, they are not a U.S. government agency, despite what their name sounds like. They are the nation's largest corporate lobbying group. And they've said uh, while they uh, would like to see further improvements, that passage of this legislation is absolutely critical to restore choice, flexibility and innovation to America's health care markets. Now, that may not be going over uh, well, uh, you know, this uh, support for this bill among some of the rank and file Republicans. But boy, oh boy, for some reason, Republican leadership really, really wants to uh, wants to take the chamber's advice here. So this is all moving uh, very quickly today, very quickly. Uh, and uh, we just got a, a few more breaking news alerts as I go to air here. Um, but I want to just Alice Olstein over at TPM just gives a great idea of where the day started today. Um, she says the day began uh, dawned in disarray. As of 9 a.m., the vote Uh, to repeal the Affordable Care Act had not yet been scheduled. The House Rules Committee had not finished its markup of the bill after 13 hours of debate and was scrambling on Thursday to override the House policy of of forbidding same-day votes on bills. They're not supposed to vote on the same day that they finish marking it up. This is something that the the House, the Republicans, have been you know furious about whenever uh, Democrats tried to do this, but they were trying to work around those rules today. At the same time, a planned meeting of the House Republican uh, conference was canceled at the last minute. But lawmakers, some lawmakers didn't receive the memo. They were seen wandering into the room. Negotiations on major policy changes that would impact millions of people are ongoing even at this hour, making uh, the likelihood of a congressional budget office analysis of the final bill before the vote close to zero. Although we just got word the CBO did come back with a score of something. I'm not sure which version they they got. We'll get to that in a moment. But um, it, it has just been absolute chaos, apparently, on uh, on Capitol Hill over the past 12 to 24 hours. And one of the things that they've been doing is trying to uh, trying to win over the votes of uh, the Freedom Caucus in the House. And to do so, the. Uh, The leadership and the White House has promised they would dismantle the so-called 10 essential health benefits of the Affordable Care Act. What are those 10 essential health benefits that they are uh, willing to do away with in your insurance policies? Well, here's the list. One, outpatient care. That's the kind that you get without being admitted to a hospital. That will no longer need to be uh, included in uh, health insurance policies. Trips to the emergency room would no longer have to be covered. Treatment in the hospital for inpatient care. Care before and after your baby is born. So prenatal care. 
Mental health and substance use uh, disorder services, that can be ended. That includes behavioral health treatment, uh, counseling, psychotherapy for mental issues. Prescription drugs would not have to be covered. Uh, disability or chronic condition coverage, uh, which if you are injured, uh, this includes physical and occupational therapy, speech language pathology, psychiatric rehabilitation and more. Your lab tests would not have to be covered. Preventative services, including counseling, screening, vaccines, pediatric services, including dental care and vision care for kids. All of that was required in every plan that was offered on the Affordable Care Act exchange. The Republicans are willing to do away with all of that in order to get this thing passed, in order to, you know, be able to go out and say, well, hey, we we actually made premiums cheaper. You don't get anything for it. You but get hey, nothing you for can, it. You can pay all you want for that premium. It'll be cheap. But when you actually need the health care, it won't be. There. Well, it, it'll be ten dollars. You can have a ten dollar health insurance policy and you are covered. Now, it might only cover you for, you know, $200 when you uh, end up in the emergency room. But hey, you know what? They always say people don't need people need to be dis- to decide what it is they need. Well, Apparently yeah. they need to We uh, need to shop around for that emergency room care when you're just in that car accident. Exactly. They say that oh, you know, some people don't need emergency room coverage. <laughs> So, you know, uh, you know, why ah. why do people need to pay for cancer care when they don't have cancer? So, um, yeah, so now now some of those things uh, look like they're actually going to be uh, included in a bill that eventually, if it does, uh, passes the House. But if that happens, um, some of those essential benefits, if that happens, Democrats in the Senate are going to go to the parliamentarian and say, no, 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 we can't pass this with a 50 vote majority vote. We've got to have. A full 60. The Republicans are hoping in the Senate they can get away with passing this stuff that is budget related with a simple majority vote instead of having to get 60 votes and try to overcome a filibuster, which they could never do. They're having enough trouble even getting a simple majority of 50 in the in the uh, in the Senate. This is an absolute disaster. And uh, now we are learning that even cutting, even making the plan so much worse that it cuts essential health benefits, even that was not enough uh, for the Freedom Caucus. <laughs> so it still, still wasn't not, cruel enough. It, oh, my goodness. It's going the other way. Uh, Congressman Chris Collins of New York said for every vote you pick up on the right, you're now losing two on the left. And for every vote you pick up on the left, you're now losing two on the right. This is an absolute disaster. Um, It's an absolute disaster for Republicans. Uh, And now um, let's see here. Uh, about an hour or so ago pro- from AP, prospects for the Republicans' uh, health care bill looked grimmer by the minute as Donald Trump failed to get a deal with a block of uh, conservatives, leaving the legislation short of votes in the House. GOP leaders were meeting behind closed doors to determine the next steps, with moderate-leaning uh, Republican lawmakers now also bailing on the legislation. It looked increasingly unlikely that the vote plan for later Thursday would happen, and now it won't. House Republican leaders have abruptly canceled a planned vote on the GOP health care bill Thursday afternoon. House GOP uh, leadership aide confirmed to NBC there would be no vote before Friday. Uh, So we will see if they can even get a vote on this on Friday. 
Mark Meadows uh, from the Republicans uh, uh, Freedom Caucus. He's the founder of the Republican Freedom Caucus. Said, "I can tell you at this point, we are trying to get another thirty to forty votes that are now in the no category to vote. Uh, trying to get them to vote yes. Thirty to forty votes. If they lose just twenty-two votes in the U.S. House, this thing does not pass. The AP confirms that they have counted at least thirty-one solid no votes. So, uh, not going well. Not going well for the great deal maker Donald Trump in the U.S. House. Apparently, uh, we'll see if the GOP uh, can even get a bill, uh, can get a vote on this uh, on Friday. Uh, in the meantime, the CBO, as we go to air here, did come out with a score. I haven't gotten to read it yet, but the headline from AP says that the revised GOP health care uh, bill reduces the deficit less than their earlier version, and it does not improve coverage. So the earlier version uh, would leave uh, some uh, 24 million Americans without health coverage that would otherwise have it under Obamacare. In the next 10 years, um, this does not improve on that. And uh, instead of the, what was it, something, a 330,000... Uh, $337 billion, I think, was a billion. The, it would reduce the deficit by $337 The billion. old bill. The old bill. This one reduces it by about half that amount, $150 billion over the next 10 years. So uh, the bill is getting worse. Uh, in in many regards uh, for Republicans, and, well, that's where we are. All right, before we get to James Wilt, let me hit this uh, very quickly. Top Democrats moving on from one mess in uh, in the U.S. House over to the other mess in the, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, the top Democrat in the Senate on Thursday, Chuck Schumer, said that he will oppose the nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. He encouraged other Democrats to reject President Donald Trump's choice for the U.S. Supreme Court, setting up a showdown with majority Republicans. After careful deliberation, I have concluded that I cannot support Judge Neil Gorsuch's nomination to the Supreme Court. His nomination will have a cloture vote. He will have to earn 60 votes for confirmation. My vote will be no, and I urge my colleagues to do the same. To my Republican friends who think that if Judge Gorsuch fails to reach 60 votes, we ought to change the rules, I say, if this nominee cannot earn 60 votes, a bar met by each of President Obama's nominees and George Bush's last two nominees, the answer isn't to change the rules, it's to change the nominee. Shortly before Chuck Schumer's announcement today, uh, Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey, Democrat, uh, who faces re-election next year in Pennsylvania, which uh, which narrowly reportedly went to Donald Trump. Uh, Bob Casey announced his opposition to uh, to Neil Gorsuch as well. He said he had serious concerns about uh, Gorsuch's rigid and restrictive judicial philosophy uh, that's good because, as we've noted, it's a stolen U.S. Supreme Court seat and no Democrat should vote for it, period. Uh, just because you're, you know, you're, you're allowing there you're allowing there to be no institutional punishment for having stolen this seat over the past more than a year since Antonin Scalia died and the seat opened up and Barack Obama had uh, nominated Merrick Garland. 
So um, the opposition from those two Democrats, Casey and Schumer, uh, comes after two days of hearings in which Gorsuch apparently emerged unscathed among Republicans in any event. And yet, even with that, some Democrats have said reportedly, according to Politico, that they are looking to make a deal with Republicans. Uh, a group of about six Democrats are trying to make some kind of a deal that they will that they will allow Gorsuch to go through in exchange for what? For something in exchange for not uh, destroying the filibuster, not doing away with the filibuster, which is what uh, Mitch McConnell has indicated he may be willing to do if Democrats hold tight. As of now, if no Democrats vote for uh, for Gorsuch, Mitch McConnell um, is going to have to, well, Gorsuch will be blocked. McConnell is going to have to come up one way or another with eight Democratic votes in order to get Gorsuch through, at least without destroying the filibuster, doing away with the filibuster, which he'll be able to do on a majority of uh, uh, um, on a majority vote with just 50 votes. But in order to uh, do that, um, He's got to convince 50 Republicans that doing away with the filibuster is a good idea. Now, uh, Politico's report is sort of unsourced. We don't know who it is, who these Democrats are who are trying to work out this deal with Republicans. But I just wanted to point it out uh, in case you would like in case you live in a state where your senator is a Democrat. uh, But Donald Trump won last year. And those are the Democrats who apparently seem to be very worried. Those senators who are going to be up for reelection next year in Trump states. Those are the ones you need to call the most. The phone number for Congress is 202-224-3121. If you'd like to express your opinion, either way on this, you need to ring in. Democracy doesn't only take place every four years. It takes place now. Um, one of the things they're looking at doing, the Democrats are looking at doing, is saying, OK, we will approve Gorsuch if you don't blow up the filibuster uh, so that we can save our uh, our fight for next time, under the premise that Republicans would not just blow up the filibuster next time. Hostage-taking works. Uh, apparently it does uh, with Democrats. Don't let that happen. If you give a damn about the Supreme Court and if you give a damn about this unprecedented theft of that Supreme Court for the next generation. If you want more Paul Ryan's and Donald Trump's, uh, you know, to be deciding how uh, life works in this country, then everything is great. If not, give a call to your uh, to your senator. 202-224-3120. That same number also works, by the way, to get through to your uh, congressman in the U.S. House if you'd like to ring in on this uh, disastrous chaos uh, going on around uh, the Republican health care bill. But with all of this chaos, some of Trump's plans to dismantle the uh, the nation and the planet along with it are moving ahead with much less attention from the media, almost no attention, in fact. And one of those disturbing stories is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. I should have listened to my mama. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As you know, one of Donald Trump's first acts upon taking office was to issue an executive order meant to clear the way for the completion of two massive oil pipelines that had previously been rejected by the Obama administration, both the uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is uh, set to ship North Dakota Bakken shale oil across about six states, and the Canadian-owned Keystone XL Pipeline, which its owners, TransCanada, have been trying to complete for years in hopes of shipping dirty tar sands oil from Alberta, Canada, down through the Midwest and to the Gulf of Mexico for export overseas. Over this past weekend, according to AP, an appeals court refused a request from two Native American tribes for an emergency order that would prevent oil from flowing through the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota. The AP reports the decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia means that the $3.8 billion pipeline set to move North Dakota oil to a distribution point in Illinois, could be operating as early as this week, even as the tribe's uh, lawsuit challenges the project and and that, uh, that case will continue to move forward. But they will not get that emergency order they were hoping for. The Standing Rock and Cheyenne River Sioux tribes have been challenging an earlier ruling by U.S. District Judge James Bosberg not to stop final construction of the pipeline. AP says they also wanted the appeals court to uh, halt any flow of oil until the case was resolved. But the appeals court said the tribes had not met the stringent requirements for such an order. The tribes had asked the lower court judge to direct the Army Corps of Engineers to withdraw permission for the Dallas-based developer Energy Transfer Partners to lay pipe under Lake Oahe in North Dakota, which the Corps manages for the U.S. government. The stretch under the Missouri River Reservoir is now the last piece of construction for that Dakota Access Pipelines. The tribes, uh, of course, have uh, feared that, as we've reported now for many months, uh, that the pipeline could harm their water supply, would corrupt their sacred lands and their right to practice their religion, which they say relies on clean water. Energy Transfer Partner disputes all of the above, and the tribe's appeal now rests on the religion argument. Judge Bosberg has said he does not think that the tribes have a strong case on appeal and that, therefore... Energy transfer partners would be substantially harmed by a delay in uh, pipeline operations and completion of construction. So that's the Dakota Access Pipeline. It looks like the effort to block that by the Native American water protectors in South Dakota, North Dakota, I'm sorry, uh, will have failed now that Donald Trump is in office, at least until the case can be heard on appeal, though that seems 
Unlikely to happen before oil starts flowing through that pipeline uh, sometime this week. But what of the Keystone XL pipeline? That process to restart construction on that pipeline over the U.S.-Canadian border will likely take much longer, given that the Canadian company TransCanada was required by law to resubmit their application to the U.S. government for another full review. Over at the Desmog blog Canada, James Wilt writes, Almost a full decade since applying for a presidential permit, TransCanada looks set to finally receive go-ahead in the U.S. for its massive $8 billion Keystone XL pipeline. But here's the thing, he notes. U.S. approval, while a great leap forward for TransCanada, does not guarantee the Keystone XL pipeline will actually ever be built. President Donald Trump, he writes, was elected with the explicit promise to get that 830,000 barrel per day pipeline open under under the conditions that the U.S. would receive a, quote, big, big chunk of the profits or even ownership rights and that it would be built with American steel. Well, as we have previously reported, uh, the Trump administration has already flip flopped on the uh, on the pledge that it be built with American steel. But while TransCanada has resubmitted their application just two days after Trump's January 24th executive order, that application, Wilt reports, is now in the hands of the State Department, which Politico reports today, citing anonymous sources, plans to approve the cross-border permit for the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline as early as Monday. While we can uh, likely guess how a Trump State Department is going to rule on that application, a State Department now run by the former head of ExxonMobil, the process for completing the pipeline construction may not be as much of a slam dunk as many believe, according to Wilt. To explain why that may be the case, we're now joined by James Wilt. He's a freelance journalist based in Winnipeg, Manitoba and a regular contributor to Desmog Blog Canada. He's also written for Vice Canada, CBC Calgary, Albert, Alberta Oil, and Fast Forward Weekly. James Wilt, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks so much for having me. I uh, really appreciate you joining us um, because this is actually potentially some good news amongst a whole bunch of dark news down here in, in at least these United States. Uh, you offer... Uh, three reasons in your uh, in your piece at uh, Desmog Blog Canada uh, that you think that uh, the Keystone XL may not be quite the slam dunk that it certainly appears down here to be, James. Uh, certainly on the heels of the uh, quick turnaround for Dakota Access. So let's walk through. Uh, you, you offer three general uh, categories of reasons why you think it may not be such of a slam dunk. First, uh, you point to the economic conditions for building the massive tar sands export pipeline. And uh, mm-hmm. you say that that's changed uh, since the issue was last examined by the Obama administration. How so? Well, for sure. I mean, we, we've seen global oil prices sort of plummeting over the last uh, few years. And, and the reality is that uh, oil sands bitumen is it's, it's very expensive to extract. And so for a lot of... Uh, Companies, it's it's not as viable, and we have seen a lot of international companies, such as Shell and Statoil, um, sell off their assets just because they have um, you know opportunities in uh, other regions which are more profitable for them. And so, n- new pipelines rely on uh, long-term shipping agreements. And so, you know, even if Keystone does receive regulatory approval um, from the State Department, it doesn't necessarily mean that the pipeline will be built. 
because uh, at the end of the day, the economics are all around the shipper agreement. So it has to be these oil sands companies who um, do believe that they will be receiving a, a good return, um, you know, from from that pipeline over you know 10, 20 years. And uh, we saw Enbridge um, CEO Al Monaco. Uh, they tried to build a uh, Northern Gateway pipeline through Northern BC that was blocked, and now they're um, interested in, in other pipelines. Now, um, he, he argued that uh, we uh, can't only need two more export pipelines to, um, you know, for, for the next uh, decade or so, or until uh, 2025. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this has been something that's been backed up by market analysts, is that, you know, uh, three or four pipelines, which are sort of on the table right now, just, just aren't required for the economics of oil in the near future. And so um, this this sort of puts Keystone uh, a big question mark over Keystone. Um, we'll, we'll for sure need two pipelines for for what the oil sands expansion is required, um, but it's not uh, it's not something that is um, guaranteed for for any more of that. Now, of course, if oil prices did bounce back, say to seventy, eighty dollars, and that could be the result of anything. Um, a war in Iran, a revolution in Saudi Arabia, then this would be a completely different story. But currently, uh, at you know thirty-five, thirty-seven dollars per barrel, which is how much Western Canadian Select uh, gets, there's just there's no um, greenfield or, or new projects forecasted in the uh, in the next few years. And so this means that you know uh, the, the contracts are big, big financial gambles um, for for companies. And so at this point, uh, you know, adding eight hundred thirty thousand uh, barrels of uh, oil per day doesn't necessarily. Uh, represents a, a super good thing for um, for the upstream companies, mm. and so from people I spoke to, they they just said that the massive expansion um, should it happen might might not even mean financial benefits um, for the sector itself because what this also results in is cost overruns. We've seen this happen before, where uh, wages uh, skyrocket and the the cost of actual production increases far too rapidly for the uh, for the sector to actually make a profit from. So there's a number of different reasons why right. the economics just aren't looking super great right now. And now again, none of us know what the oil prices are going to be, you know, five ten years from now. But if oil prices do stay uh, where they are now or you know in in the realm, mm-hmm. it's just it's not it's not a good case. And so uh, when you when you talk about the need for there may just may not be the need for this pipeline, is that after taking into account that uh, uh, Canadian Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau had recently uh, supposedly a liberal, by the way, but he he approved right. uh, two different pipelines within uh, just the past few months. So is that uh, keeping those two pipelines already in mind? You're saying after those, there really may not be the need uh, for this additional, for the Keystone XL? Well, that's, that's the argument. Now, Trudeau's position is, is a, it's a curious one um, because not only have they uh, approved Kingdom Morgan Trans Mountain and Enbridge Line 3, which happened at the end of November, but they've also expressed uh, continued support for the Keystone, which was approved by the Canadian government back in 2010. So those two pipelines add about a million barrels per day uh, uh-huh. of capacity, uh, which will increase uh, the oil sands capacity quite significantly. Um, and then this is where the environmental thing comes into, which we can discuss later. Um, but just if, if those two pipelines do go ahead, then that's going to give you know far uh, like uh, definitely enough um, you know production capacity for for the mm-hmm. near future. And there's also oil by rail, which is a really controversial issue. But if you combine oil by rail with uh, with line three of Enbridge and of uh, the Kingdom Morgan Trans Mountain, it's going to be certainly enough, certainly enough for a while. And so we do look at the Keystone, and even though 
uh, Trump and Trudeau may like the idea and may just not be um, in in the interests of uh, you know big capital up in uh, up in the uh, Athabasca oil sands. Well, I, it may not, but you know, I'm looking at uh, you know the question, and, and you cited this uh, a bit earlier. But can we rely on on prices remaining low? So actually, specifically, can TransCanada rely on prices remaining low? You know, given uh, instable world conditions right now, frankly, we got kind of a crazy guy in our White House down here. Uh, is this something that? Uh, even though it might not be imme- it might not make immediate sense, they might say, "Hey, look, uh, we don't have a lot left here to sort of get over the border. We've got someone down in the White House who is friendly now. Let's get this thing done while we can. Uh, you know, get it while the getting's good. In other words, whether it makes immediate economic sense or not." Mm-hmm. Well. Uh... It's, it, it does it does make a, a certain amount of sense, but also we have to remember that uh, in in recent years the U.S. has has uh, greatly increased uh, oil and gas production domestically mm-hmm. via the shale revolution. So we've seen that, like you mentioned, in, in the Bakken in, in North mm-hmm. Dakota, and also in the Eagleford and Permian in Texas. And so we've seen a, a really big domestic uh, production increase. And so the question now for a lot of uh, Canadian producers is there there is certainly going to be uh, some capacity which can be exported to the U.S., but is it going to be uh, enough? And then there's also the talk about opening up federal public lands uh, by Trump for access by oil and gas. So, so that's a big question mm. mark there. Is just in terms of how much more uh, the the North American market is going to be flooded uh, with oil from the U.S. And something that uh, TransCanada's uh, former CEO Hal Quisley has has said to the uh, media is that the the, the TransCanada really needs to do a job of regaining the, the trust uh, of the of the oil and gas upstream producers and convincing them that there is an economic case to be made. And so this is something that's really going to come down to uh, mid- to long-term forecasting. Uh, and right now, I mean, we're, we're just not seeing a lot of uh, potential for new greenfield production. You know, after 2020, there, there aren't a lot on the table. There are a lot of uh, approved or under-construction projects in the oil sands, but... There's nothing that's uh, that's confirmed after 2020. A lot of companies are just sort of sitting back and waiting to see if oil prices rebound. And like I said, if if Trump does proceed with opening up the federal lands and does um, you know allow for increased uh, uh-huh. production, which we're all expecting, then then the case may not necessarily be that that good. Um, now th- there are issues around um, refineries in the Gulf Coast because production has been decreasing from Mexico and Venezuela. They do have heavy oil refineries there. Um, and so there's about a million barrels which are decreasing via, from those two countries. And so mm-hmm. there's potential opening, um, you know, uh, from that. But then we've also got Enbridge Line 3. We've got the potential for more mainline expansion to that network. And so mm-hmm. there's, there's just a lot of oil capacity already flowing south. Um, and so it may not necessarily be the economic case that Keystone is, uh, is required, uh, let alone now, but even, even in like the, the mid-future. Let's, uh, let's move on to your second point here of three, um, why the uh, Keystone XL may not ever get built. Uh, landowners, you say, and this one we've been mm-hmm. watching uh, closely over the years because there are a lot of folks in Nebraska uh, whose lands uh, specifically will be kind of bisected by this pipeline who are they are still fighting uh, still fighting it in in nebraska yeah well we, we've already seen some uh some flare-ups uh you know landowners in nebraska specifically have begun to to meet and to uh sort of uh you know discuss how they do want to continue to to resist uh keystone and yeah again it's, we're going to kind of see this uh play out over time but i think after what we've seen 
um, happened in Standing Rock, um, mm-hmm. around the Dakota Access uh, Pipeline and the resistance there, led by Indigenous peoples. Um, and then, you know, just the alliances that have been formed over the over the years. We did see the uh, Cowboy Indian Alliance in 2014, uh, which united a lot of Indigenous peoples in, uh, in Nebraska, as well as uh, farmers and landowners. And so we, we never know what those lawsuits, if it does go to that, are going to um, amount to. But even just the political... Uh, needle moving and just uh, you know bringing the, the you know the nation and the international uh, community's attention to this could could end up you know hurting uh, the the reputation of of Trans Canada and you know Trans Canada is quite bullish it, it did it did uh, file a fifteen billion dollar lawsuit against the United States after uh, Obama vetoed um, mm-hmm. you know the project and so it's you know sort of unsure how much they they do care about reputation at this point um but uh you know from people i talk to uh there there is you know strong argument to be made that that there will be uh state level resistance especially in nebraska and that could also um and this is something we might talk about later on the environment thing but there's uh there's also the potential for climate based litigation mm-hmm. where people are are filing lawsuits based on the future emissions associated it was uh, oil sands pipeline expansion, uh, and so you, know, you kind of combine all these things: the landowners, uh, you know, the indigenous peoples, and then sort of just the international community's, um, you know, attention since uh, since uh, Standing Rock and since some other issues. And we, we we're seeing the same thing uh, heat up around Kinder Morgan, um, and uh, you know, just going going west through BC. And there's there's the same sort of resistance coalescing around there. There's a there's a treaty alliance against tar sands expansion, which is you know, uniting hundreds of different, uh, you know, First Nations and Indigenous communities across North America. And so, you know, now more than ever, we're, we're really seeing a, a unified resistance, which could could prove to be quite the uh, the pain in the butt for Trans-Canada in terms of uh, reputation and other issues. And one, one point I want to uh, underscore here, because we've, we've covered it over the years, but it really hadn't gotten a lot of attention in this country. Uh, you note that there were more than 100 Nebraska landowners who were fighting Trans-Canada's eminent domain rights. And again, this is a Canadian mm-hmm. pipeline for Canadian profits uh, being granted eminent domain here. You would think that Republicans in the U.S. would be the first uh, in line to object, frankly, since they've mm-hmm. you know claimed for so many years that eminent domain was a government you know land grab and everything else, but apparently not for pipelines. But when it comes to <laughs> Nebraska and the Republicans up there, a lot of people don't remember it was the Republican state legislature and the Republican governor up there uh, who actually stopped the Keystone uh, uh, Pipeline, the original route. That was one of the big holdups during the uh, Obama mm-hmm. administration. Um, has there been a change, uh, James Wilt, as far as you know, in the Nebraska legislature? Are they are they cool with whatever the new route is at this point for the pipeline? Can we expect any... Um, you know, any uh, state resistance, any government uh, resistance from the state of Nebraska, as far as you can tell? Well, I mean, the, the governor has indicated uh, support for the project, and uh, just uh, just recently, 33 of 49 uh, Nebraska senators, uh, you know, petitioned the, the Public Service Commission, um, which is ultimately responsible for deciding whether uh, the pipeline gets gets a state approval or not um, to, to approve it. And so a majority of state senators... Uh, are now are now in support. Uh, so you know, it sort of seems at this point that uh, while landowners and indigenous peoples on the ground may may be uh, 
you know, quite concerned about the project the, uh, at, the, at the state level. Um, it's, it's looking quite optimistic for TransCanada, mm. which, which, like you note, is surprising given uh, sort of the Republican and, and you know, conservative movements, uh, you know, alleged interest in private property rights <laughs> and, uh, and those sorts of things. Yes, uh, alleged is exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 it's, uh, it's it's an objection of convenience. It seems. Uh, is there, uh, by the way, is the I know there was the original route was uh, was rejected by the Nebraska government. Uh, did they complete a new route, the alternate route, as far as you know, uh, in Nebraska? They, they they did. Yeah, and and now now it's up to the uh, now it's up to the. the PSC to, to you know decide on whether that proposed route is uh, is good for the state. It's going to pass through nine counties, um, mm-hmm. and it does require uh, a board of five people to to approve the route through the state. And so, yeah, TransCanada has submitted it. It's mm-hmm. uh, but it's really up to the uh, you know to the board to decide if um, if it's going to get the go ahead. Gotcha. All right. Finally, you cite the environmental uh, and climate issues uh, that could slow or delay or even end up blocking uh, Keystone XL. Uh, you may have heard down here uh, in, in the U.S., James, uh, our government no longer believes in uh, such concerns, uh, particularly when it comes to the climate. Uh, but in Canada, the, the story may be a bit different. Uh, and you guys are actually um, uh, following, I guess, the, the protocols out of the, uh, the Paris Accord. What are the uh, environment and, and climate issues that could end up uh, blocking the construction uh, on, on, in that regard? Never mind, you know, if it's good for the environment or the climate or anything else, but just uh, legally, you guys have certain right. caps, right? Yeah, so so the the Alberta government, the provincial government, uh, as part of its climate climate leadership plan, uh, introduced a hundred megaton uh, emissions cap on on the oil sands specifically as a sector, and so the oil sands currently account for around sixty eight or seventy megatons per year, which is which is really significant. It's uh, you know far larger than a lot of uh, entire provinces in terms of their annual contributions. But what that means is it's only going to allow the sector to grow by about fifty percent in terms of. Uh, production and so this is another thing that companies are going to have to begin to factor in to their long-term forecasting and whether they decide to mm-hmm. uh, to sign up on these these pipeline contracts with TransCanada is how seriously they think that the uh, the future Alberta government is going to take the cap if that cap is going to be overturned and then also where the federal government is going to be at that point because like you say the there has been a uh, a pretty significant climate agreement signed among the provinces it's called the Pan Canadian Framework and all but two provinces have signed on to that, and that's going to uh, mandate a $50 per ton carbon price by 2022. And so it's it's not enough to derail future, um, or I shouldn't use derail, it's not enough to, to prevent future um, oil sands expansion, but again, it's just putting sort of that financial uh, pressures on, you know, and, and it's going to be sort of an, an implicit price on carbon, uh, which is far greater than uh, even $50 because of that um, 100 megaton carbon price, or carbon cap, rather. And so, you know, all these things sort of combine, and it's, uh, mm. we, we could see a million uh, barrels per day increase just via the two pipelines that Trudeau uh, approved back in November. And, you know, the, the big question for the oil sands right now is can they cut per barrel emissions? So, you mm. know, can they reduce the amount of uh, CO2, you know, kilograms of CO2 that's emitted from every barrel produced? That's a big question. Industry is saying that they can. Uh, a lot of critics are saying that it's it's talk. Um, Greenpeace's Keith Stewart, who I spoke to since 2007, these companies have been talking big about uh, solvents, which is a, 
a way of reducing water consumption and greenhouse gases. And so especially given that, uh, you know, oil prices are low, um, usually R&D budgets uh, also decrease in these sorts of times. And so, you know, we, we may see oil sands companies, you know, come up with this this uh, silver bullet, uh, which will, you know, save them from, um, you know, uh, having to actually confront uh, the, the emissions cap. But if oil prices do rebound and if, uh, if they don't come up with something like that, then it's really going to make it economically difficult and, you know, also fairly environmentally infeasible um, just because of that cap. Well, so. we'll have, we'll have a clean, dirty oil sands just about as soon as we have clean coal down in this country. Right. <laughs> uh, James, I got just a minute or so here, but uh, very quickly, you, you cite uh, in, your, in your piece over at the Smog Blog Canada, uh, Chevron's a recent submission to the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, noting that mm-hmm. climate-related litigation is growing. It's an increased danger to the bottom line for fossil fuel companies. What evidence do, uh, do you see that uh, fossil fuel companies are really concerned about this increasing legislation? And you mentioned one, the, uh, the case that uh, kids have now been allowed to uh, file a lawsuit uh, against, uh, I guess, the U.S. government and, and elsewhere um, that, you know, the governments need to protect the climate for their future. But uh, how do you see uh, more and more litigation now actually making things more difficult for these fossil fuel companies? Mm-hmm. Well, Newsweek uh, had a had a good article on March 11th, I believe, which sort of documented sort of the the increasing trend that we're seeing here. So the one the story that they led with was that the uh, South African government actually uh, lost a lawsuit uh, over a proposed coal-fired power plant, uh, simply based on uh, you know potential emissions coming from that. Uh, and now, of course, it's it's a country by country situation, but. They also note that we're seeing, um, you know, similar situation in Austria. There's a planned international airport that was blocked over concerns with emissions, and then there's, you know, there's um, other issues in, in Europe, and uh, U.S. and Belgium, uh, which are cited, which which all sort of, um, you know, lead one to conclude that this is something that companies are becoming increasingly concerned about, and and rightfully so. Uh, you know, we, we're seeing the case uh, with with the 21 kids in the U.S., which is going to mm-hmm. be a really fascinating one to see. Uh, unfold, and uh, it does seem like there are concerns in the Trump administration over the potential for that. So, you know, it's um, it, 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 it's always um, perhaps a little optimistic to put too much, uh, you know, faith in in the court system. But you know, like you, you were mentioning mm-hmm. with the Dakota Access, uh, you know, and, and the, a lot of tribes not not really making much progress via that route. But there, you know, there have been some um, examples which. You know, lead one to potentially believe that there there are increased cases, and you know, Chevron did submit to the SEC and say, you know, this is something that you know may may impact potential investments, uh, which you know, for people who are concerned about uh, you know greenhouse gas emissions, is is a positive thing. That's the uh, the optimistic James Wilt of uh, the Smog Blog Canada. You can read his article: Three Reasons Why Keystone XL May Never Get Built. Uh, a very optimistic. Actually, it's not. I think it's it's a very fair article and 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 uh, smartly laid out. We'll see if it comes to pass or not. Uh, but you know, we'll we'll take any glint of good news we can find down here in uh, in the U.S. Uh, thanks, James. James Wilt. You can find his work at desmog.ca, and you can find him on the Twitters at James underscore M underscore Wilt. Really appreciate you joining us here uh, today, James, and I hope you don't mind if we call you in the future uh, when this thing actually gets built and you're proven completely wrong. (laughs) Absolutely. No, I'll be happy to. Thanks so much for having me.
You bet. Thank you, James. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with our uh, closing few minutes. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Just time left for uh, some quick listener mail here. Uh, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. This from Michael T. concerning uh, Citizens United and our conversation about it yesterday um, via our Facebook page here, actually. Our Facebook page is The Brad Blog. Michael writes, Hi, Brad. I listened to your radio show today. was intrigued by your discussing dark money and Citizens United. You brushed over Donald Trump not having the billionaire money of other candidates. That's not true, he says. After Trump got the nomination, Robert Mercer and his daughter Rebecca's super PAC switched from Ted Cruz to Trump. Over the summer, they took over Trump's campaign, bringing in Steve Bannon from Breitbart. Mercers are co-owners after uh, uh, 2011 and a $10 million investment there. And Kellyanne Conway from the same super PAC. Rebecca Mercer was part of the Trump's transition team. With Citizens United, the Mercers are serious political power brokers with a strong right-wing libertarian agenda. Very dangerous. Trump owes them for the victory. Best regards, Mike. Uh, thanks for those thoughts, Mike. You are, of course, absolutely correct in regard to the Mercers uh, and some other millionaires and billionaires uh, backing Trump as well. I didn't mean to brush over it as much as I was trying to make a larger point. Um, while on short time on yesterday's show, you can download it at bradblog.com if you missed it. <clears throat> Let's see here. This is Art M. writes uh, email to bradcast at bradblog.com. Art says he's an appellate court public defender, and he was responding to one of our shows this week on the GOP's stolen Supreme Court nomination. Hi, Brad. Great show as usual. Here's what I added to an appellate lawyer forum post on the Gorsuch hearing, with which you might agree. No Republican nominee should get any votes. By blocking Garland, the Republicans stole a moderate liberal Supreme Court from the majority of American voters who have voted against the Republican presidential candidate in six of the last seven elections. The damage a, quote, conservative Supreme Court will likely do in the next few years could last for decades. The failure of majority rule when it comes to the Supreme Court is a constitutional existential crisis for the United States, 
At some point, the majority will realize they don't have to accept life under minority rule by plutocrats and authoritarian fake Christians or a constitution that allows that to happen. Art. Uh, thank you for that, Art. Excellent point. And, uh, and this note from Thomas P. Uh, that came with a donation uh, that was sent to bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, he writes, thanks for all you do. Great to hear your in-depth coverage of the most important news not being heard in the MSM. Brad and Desi are two voices I can actually listen to intently while painting. What? Yeah, I know. Which is a rare, oh. which is a rare quality. He says, "Thanks for being tolerable, despite the dark news." Says Thomas P. Huh. Um, well, first, maybe I should add that as a tagline for the broadcast. Quote: "Tolerable." <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but I am surprised he's able to tolerate my ranting and uh, railing and stay serene enough to keep painting. I must be doing something wrong, Des. <laughs> Uh, but I do appreciate the kind words and the support, Thomas. Uh, you, too, can stay serene by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to uh, help us stay on your public airwaves. It is tremendously appreciated, especially now. So uh, thank you in advance for that. And thanks for those comments. That's nice to hear. All of those uh, interesting points, all. Indeed. Uh, my thanks to you, Desi Doyen, our producer. Also to James Wilt today, my guest from Desmog Blog Canada. And to all of you who spent a portion of your day or night with us. It really is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. As I noted, you can send me email at bradcast at bradblog.com and find us on the Facebooks and the Twitters where we hope you will find, follow, and share us far and wide, uh, or just harass us there. We'll take anything. <laughs> we're, we're easy. Uh, you can find us uh, at Twitter and Facebook at The Brad Blog. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.